will please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We will be looking this morning in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. This is the Word of God. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we give you thanks for the word picture in which we woke this morning to see that rain would fall from the heavens, coming down to water and nourish the earth. And yet that is the picture in which we read about in Isaiah that so too does your word. And so it is our prayer. May your word fall from the heavens by the power of your spirit that we in fact might read and understand it and know Christ Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you haven't been with us in the last few weeks, we've been in an Advent series called the Complete Christmas. The understanding of we have a complete Christmas because we have a complete Christ. And as Pastor Smith admitted earlier, we have been looking at the larger catechism and focusing on the offices of Christ, the, the office of mediator, the office of prophet. This morning we'll look at priest and Lord willing, next Lord's Day we will look at King, we're doing so, you might say, in a somewhat of a systematic way, and that is to say, how does the entirety of the Scripture give to us an understanding of these roles, of the offices of Christ? Now, of course, we cannot unpack all of the Scripture in 25 to 35-minute sermon, but it is our aim to help us understand more clearly these terms. I'm not naive to think that you have never heard the term prophet before or king or priest, but perhaps what is more needed is just a little bit of a slowing down and consideration. What do these offices and these titles, in fact, mean? How does it impress upon our life who Christ is and what he does continually for his church? And so this morning, we want to look in Hebrews chapter 9 and specifically just a few verses. But I want you to understand what's the book of Hebrews about. Now, some of you who have been with me in the teenagers' devotions, I've given you a little bit of a framework on this book. It's a, it's a sermon. It's an incredibly well-crafted sermon. And he is writing to a people, Jewish people, who have undergone and are still undergoing great amounts of persecution persecution for loving Jesus. But then there's this form of persecution in which the people of God are threatening, they're, they're considering to leave. 
We will leave the Christian faith and we would rather return to Judaism. It's easier, it's more comfortable. And in fact, in, depending on where you are geographically, it's, it's legal. And so the writer to Hebrews, he's saying, I want you to understand something, beloved. If, if you decide to leave Christianity, you, you are not leaving to go to something greater. You're leaving for something far less, something that is far more insufficient. And in fact, you're leaving for something that cannot and does not save. That is the book of Hebrews. And that's what we want to look at this morning is how do we understand the office of priest? Now, if you were reading carefully, when we looked at those verses, there's a word that showed up four different times. It's the, it's the word of blood. He's describing a sacrifice. And you can read these verses and simply say, it's 2021 and I don't understand what you're talking about. This is nothing in which I live. No category of my life is ever being depicted by what I'm reading here. How possibly could this apply to me? What good does this reading of Scripture have on my very soul? But I want you to understand what the writer has just said to you is fundamental to the entire reading of Scripture. It is fundamental to the entire understanding of Christianity, and that is blood. Blood is at the heart of Christianity. Blood is at the heart or the center of the Christian message. And so I want you to know the importance of what he's doing, because in our understanding of what he is saying, we are also prepared to recognize all those who would say something different. And that, too, is vital to your understanding of the gospel. There is, in fact, a man. He's no longer living. He was a bishop in the Episcopalian church. Perhaps you have heard of him. His name is Bishop John Shelby Spong. He has a, a dangerous quote. What he says in his understanding of word, blood, and how he understands the scriptural teaching of it. This is what he says. I choose to loathe rather than worship a deity that required the sacrifice of his son. He's given great effort to that very statement. He has a book called Why Christianity Must Change or Die. And his entire understanding is to say, that's not a good God. No God would kill his own son for the sake of others. He doesn't see how blood can fit into the doctrine of Scripture or the doctrine of salvation or the doctrine of God. And yet, when he says, I loathe it, the church, in fact, says, we glory in it. Is that not many of the songs that you, in fact, have sung? Maybe you have heard some of these lyrics before. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Or that 
hymn of the month we sang a few months back, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. He breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt, grace, grace, God's grace. And there are many others. We do not loathe, we love it. For in fact, it is everything for you and for me. We have no grounds to stand in our understanding of the gospel without a true understanding of blood. That is the book of Hebrews. It is, it's about access. The writer wants you to know what is and how do you and I obtain access to God? How do we have a presence before the Lord? And he does so through a great exposition of the Old Testament. He wants you to understand all of the teachings of the Old Testament that you might better understand how is it fulfilled in Jesus. And that's really what we want to do this morning. We want to understand the identity of this high priest. What kind of high priest are we talking about? And then we want to look at the commission or the work of this high priest. First, the identity of this priest we are prone in our understanding of the scripture. We often come with these thoughts. I know this, I've read this, I've heard this. And so we know how to read. And in fact, we can perhaps speed read. It might be a part of our daily devotion. I need to be able to check this box for the day. And so I see I have five minutes. There might be five pages. I don't have much time. And so we read and we read quickly. But I think what the writer is saying here is, if that is you, you have missed a great deal. Slow down and consider what they're in fact telling you. The writer here has said something quite profound to you and I just in verse 11 and just in the first few words of verse 11. He says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, the book of Hebrews uses different names and different titles in describing Jesus. And every time the author does it, he does so in a context that is appropriate to his point. And so if you're reading the book of Hebrews, you will read names or titles like Jesus or Christ or Jesus Christ or our Lord or even at times the Son. And every moment you read these, put it in its context. He's trying to explain something to you about who is Jesus. Do not just take those titles and names and keep going. So this morning, he actually uses the word Christ you know that that's not his name. You recognize that to be a title, a title that has rich meaning and connection with the Old Testament. That is connection with the word Messiah or anointed one. He's talking to a group, an audience, who are looking for a Messiah. Over and over in their history, the Jewish people were ready and looking for a Messiah. Do you remember that moment in the life of John the Baptist when he was in prison? 
And he sent disciples to go ask Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, are you the one that we are to be looking for? Or should there be another? The people of God were trained to look for a Messiah. The problem is in their looking for the Messiah, they did not look for the Messiah they most needed. They didn't look for the Messiah they most needed. They looked for a great and final prophet. Moses told them to. That's what he talks about in Deuteronomy chapter 18. He says, there's going to come a prophet after me who's going to teach all of what I've commanded. You are going to get the whole counsel of God. There is a greater prophet to come. And the people of God remembered that. They understood that. We're we're looking for a wise man, one who knows the counsel of God. They looked for a king. Matthew tells you that early on in the genealogy, doesn't he? In Matthew chapter two, even the Magi know that there's meant to be a king of the Jews, this newborn king. David had a promise, a covenant from God. There will be a king who sits on this throne. They are looking for a king. However, here, that's not what we read. We don't read of the final prophet or the greater king. We read of the great high priest. And so part of our understanding of the gospel, when we look at Jesus, it's not just to look at him in a prophetic way. We do need to do that. We don't want to just look at Jesus in a kingly way. We do need to do that. We do need to look at him in a priestly way. And that is what the author to Hebrews is trying to suggest. He's using language that comes out of Leviticus 16. It's the day of atonement. You get a description of priests and what they do, their ministry specifically on that day. And what it comes down to is priests are officiates. They, they officiate on behalf of others. They intercede on behalf of people. They go to the Lord on behalf of the people. That is the work of the priest. They bring in gifts and sacrifices. In fact, the writer says that in verse three in chapter eight, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. That is the goal, the ministry. The priests come with a sacrifice, a gift, in order to please God, in order that God might, in fact, restrain some of his wrath on the sin of people. And you understand at that very moment, They're not talking about an angry God. They're talking about a just God, a God who has said, do not sin. Sin will kill you, both physically, yes, but spiritually. You will not have my presence. And so he's not angry. He's being just. And in fact, as we will see, he's also being very, very merciful, And so these priests would come with gifts and sacrifices in order that God might, in fact, make his presence known to the people. And so what we have here and what we see is the people of God are looking for a Messiah. You remember those stories, even of the disciples. We've talked about them, even in our preaching on Acts. Jesus has been crucified. He's died. He's been buried. He's risen from the dead. And what are the disciples saying? Is now the time? Is now the time in which you're gonna come set up your throne in Rome? They were ready for the physical protection. 
they were ready, ready for the big win. It's our time. It's our shining moment. But that is not all of who Jesus is. He is not just the prophet and the priest or the king. He is also their priest. They knew that they needed a word from the Lord and they know that they need protection from God. But doesn't it strike you that none of them seem to have any place in their thoughts for where they needed access to God? They don't seem to understand that because of their lives, their sin, they have been kicked out of the presence of God. I just wonder how many of you and or like that. When you think about Jesus, the questions that most quickly come to mind, who am I supposed to marry, young people? Who should I marry? What job should I have? What should be my next job? Where should I live? What should I do next? How do I think about politics? How do I think about this world? We have all of these questions And we're looking for wisdom and we're looking for protection. And yet, rarely do we say, how do I have access to this God with the wisdom and the protection? Who am I to ascend the hill of the Lord? What about my sin? How is it that it will be dealt with? Because you recognize we could have every answer to all of those questions. And what Jesus is saying is, but you lack peace. You lack peace with God. And you will not have it if you do not have the right priest, if you do not have an understanding of priest. You might not like what I'm saying. You might even say, I can work harder. You might even say, I'm not going to listen. I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to go against it. It matters not. You have no access to God without peace. And that peace comes from this priest. And the writer is saying right here in verse 11, slow down. Recognize Jesus as a priest. He's not just a conquering king. Part of what makes him the conqueror is that he has first conquered sin and death. And that is his office of priest. The writer is going to continue. He wants you to know something about the identity of this priest. His name is Jesus, but he's, he's not just different being that he's Jesus. He's different in his form. There's something uniquely different about this high priest. They had high priests in the Old Testament. And what does he say in verse 11 and 12? He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. What, do, what is he doing here? I think the reason why you see the term bulls or goats and calves and the reason it's in plural is it's implying something. It's implying repetition. It's implying an ongoing nature. There is a need for a continual sacrifice. This one year will not cover the other years. It will not set you up for the future either. You got one sacrifice for each year and you needed it every single year. Now, if you're a Bible scholar and you're saying, I see what Hebrews is saying here, but when I read Leviticus 16, the order is swapped. Perhaps the reason is because the rationale is the people of God are much more concentrated with the sacrifice of calf or of goats, excuse me. 
The calf was the sacrifice for the priests. The goats were about the people of God. And what is Jesus' sacrifice focused on? The people of God. And so what is the writer saying? We have had a repetition. We have had an ongoing nature and need for sacrifice. But this high priest is different. He did not come in once a year. He entered once for all time. It was not a repeated work. It was a singular work. And the focus is not to draw your attention, in fact, to the animals. It's the title behind the animals. It's not so much the animal that was sacrificed. It was who was a part of it. The Old Testament, that was the high priest. But there's something different about Jesus. He doesn't fit the lineage of the high priest in the Old Testament. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. Now, we don't have time this morning, and all of you want to know about Melchizedek, and maybe there's a time for it, but you can start reading in Hebrews chapter 7. But the point of what he's trying to get at with Melchizedek is there is a different line, a different lineage. Because of this new lineage, it is a final lineage. It's a different form, different purpose, and who comes from that lineage? Jesus. There's a new system, you might say. This high priest secures something that the other high priest could not, and that is the eternal redemption. The eternal redemption. Now, you've heard that term before, but just to give you some simple points, what do we mean when we talk about redemption or to redeem? It, it means to deliver a person from a state of bondage. You have a bondage, I have a bondage, and you must be delivered by a payment a payment adequate to the one who gets to judge. You don't set forth the terms of those payment. It is the judge who makes those payment and it must satisfy his desire for payment. And so when we talk about the eternal redemption, you understand the bondage of our sin is eternal damnation. And the only payment is the perfect righteous record of you. But you and I don't have that. And so there must be another and that is the priest, this great high priest, and his name is Jesus. He puts forth the sacrifice that you cannot. And that is why we call it redemption. It's a satisfaction of law, both in fulfilling what was demanded and paying for what is needed to endure. He obeyed the law perfectly and he suffered the consequences of it for all those who are disobedient. You see, he's so different. He's so different. And that's what the writer is continuing to tell you. He does so because he is God. He has the eternal spirit. What is he trying to say there? He's simply saying, he is not you and me. He was born of a virgin. Something miraculous had to take place in this man that has not taken place in any other man. What flows through the body of Jesus is divine blood. And that's what was needed to secure an eternal redemption. There is not a material or monetary amount of value that you can attach to it. And that is why the terms eternal are used over and over. That is why the term once is used in conjunction with Christ. Because there is something divine about this priest, Jesus. And the writer to Hebrews has told you 
in Hebrews 1. He's the exact imprint of God. It is God in flesh coming to make a sacrifice on your behalf and on mine. That's who he is. That's his identity. The God-man came to secure an eternal redemption. But what was his commission? What was his work? What did he do? If I could provide two sub-points, I would tell you he came and he he offered a better sacrifice and he provided a powerful provision. How do we see that in this commission of the priest? That is Christ. How is he a better sacrifice? When the writer here is talking about bulls, goats, and calves, he's not trying to tell you the Old Testament was ineffective. He's not saying at all the Old Testament sacrifices were ineffective. They, in fact, were very effective. They were effective in doing what they were purposed and appointed to do. And what was it that they were appointed to do? To clean the old man externally. That's the picture that he's providing for you in verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, that is a direct quote from Numbers chapter 19. And what you're getting there is a particular kind of heifer. A red heifer was needed, one that had never been worked on in his entire life. It was to be sacrificed outside the camp in front of the priest. And as it was being sacrificed, different things were thrown in. Cedar wood, hyssop, scarlet yarn. And what would happen is at the, the finishing of that sacrifice, the priest would take those ashes. They would mix it with a solution of like water and sprinkle it on people who had sinned or touched a dead body. And the reason is because if you did that, if you had touched a dead body, and that was quite common in their day, you were considered a defiled person. You were ceremonially unclean. Now, what did that mean? It didn't mean you had a little cough and you needed to take a day off. It meant you could not be a part of the people of God. You were fully separated. You were separated from them. But I want you to understand what the writer is saying. If this sprinkling of this solution would be done, you were then made clean and you could rejoin the people of God. But all it did was clean the external man. Do you see how gracious God is? God was never questioning whether or not your heart and my heart was sinful from Genesis chapter three. He knew that you were sinful. And yet all he did was provide a means by which physically and externally you could be made clean, knowing that your heart was in fact extremely corrupt and defiled. He would tolerate, you might say, a form of your sin until the perfect priest was to come. He made provision that you in fact could be with the people of God. You had been cut off because you were defiled and yet God restored you. He brought you back. You and I know this well right now, don't you? But he's not talking about the simple quarantine. He's not saying, go get your vaccination card. He wants you to understand there's something far worse about you than this physical problem you're thinking about. There's a spiritual, internal reality that has corrupted you. And the old system wasn't designed to satisfy that. The old system was very effective in cleaning the old or the outside man, but it could not touch 
the internal, or the whole man. And so what he's trying to do here is he's saying there was a limitation back then. The limitation was simply you could be restored to fellowship with the people of God, and yet there was still a form of separation from the presence of God. You did not get to go in. Only priests did. You might be with the people of God, but you did not enter into the presence of God. And he says here, but this high priest has done something revolutionary. He has given you an access that only the priests had in the Old Testament. He has given you the presence of God. Only Jesus can do that. And that's why he is named such. For he will save you from your sins. It's why Jesus utters the profound words. It is finished. You see, we have to have a better understanding of how to read our Bibles. We can tend to think that the Bible was written beginning in Genesis. That's not a crazy idea because the name Genesis means beginning. So I could understand why you would start there. That is not how the plan of God began. God did not begin his plan with starting in the beginning was darkness. God began his plan in John chapter 19 when Jesus says, it is finished. Then you go all the way back and see the unfolding of God's plan. And then he provides you something greater. He lets you look into the future with great hope and great anticipation for what is to come. This morning, I wasn't planning on saying it. Uh, It dawned on me when we were in Sunday school. For those of you who are with us, we were talking about covenant. And we were looking in Revelation chapter 21. And John says in verse 6, it is done. Now, not that you're supposed to know these things, but let me tell you something about that phrase, it is done. It is done or it is finished is only repeated four times in the entirety of your Bible when it talks about the person of God, his being or what he has said. The first is in Genesis chapter one, the end of creation. On the seventh day, it is done, it is completed, I'm going to rest. The second, it's the words of Christ on the cross, it is finished. Do you know where the last ones come? In Revelation. And both, it is done. It means the full wrath of God is coming in Revelation chapter 16. And John finishes in 21 by saying, it is done. The new heavens and the new earth. What I said in John 19, I have now completed the new heavens and new earth. Come my people into my presence forevermore. That's how we have to read the Bible. We have to have a much bigger framework when we're reading it and when we're understanding what does it tell us about this priest, Jesus. It's why, if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Smith quote from Acts chapter four, there is no other name by which one can be saved. And they weren't just saying now. They were talking from eternity past and all the way into the future. There is no other by which one can be saved than the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's because he is the great high priest. He has a better sacrifice. And he also 
has a more powerful provision. In verse 14, you get the the logic, the how much more argument. If this worked, how much more with Christ? But what is he referring to when he uses that? He says, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now that's probably something we're tempted to read over. Our conscience, let's not talk about what goes on in our conscience. We don't want to come face to face with what's going on within us. And yet, is that not where the great problem lies? Is in our conscience. We know we are sinful. We know that we are corrupt. And the problem is we are prone to give much more attention to what we think about God than what God thinks about us. And no matter how you look at it, that is a problem. If you are a believer in Christ, this morning you need to give more attention to how God thinks about you than you think about God. If you are an unbeliever, I'm begging you, you need to give more attention to how God thinks about you than you think about him. And that is the entire point of the priestly office of Christ. It is to bring you and me to God, to reconcile and, in fact, restore us, to restore our conscience that we might enter into the very presence of God. Charles Spurgeon had a sermon on this text, and he talks about what the conscience, your conscience, my conscience, the problems that exist and what comes out of it. He says there's three of them. Your conscience and mine, it brings, in essence, he says, a knowledge of our past record of sins. We know that we have made mistakes. We might not remember all of the wrong, but we do know that we have done wrong. He says it brings a knowledge of our sinful nature. That is to say, we know that we still have bad desires, bad thoughts, and bad actions, even if we try to suppress it. And lastly, he says it brings into reality the continuing contact we have with the evil world. You can look out and you can say, there is a lot of things that are not right about what you see and what you hear. And the reason why Spurgeon is referencing that is because what Hebrews is saying is the old covenant and the old system could only deal with the matters of the flesh. It could only make a provision or a purification for the matters of the flesh. It could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That's what he says in verse nine. Your conscience needs a perfection, a provision in which you may enter in. That is why we sing things like, Jesus paid it all. It's in full so that you and I have a better understanding of how do we enter in because we have a guilty conscience. I'm not talking about your feelings. I'm not talking about how you feel bad about things or you might feel that you are guilty. We're talking about an objective standard. You stand condemned. I stand condemned because we are sinful. It's an objective reality. That is the guilt in which we are talking about. And until that burden gets dealt with, you and I will carry it our entire life. 
That is the beauty of John Bunyan's story in The Pilgrim's Progress, isn't it? Christian is carrying the burden and over and over and over, no matter what he does, no matter how he tries to get rid of it, he can't. It only gets heavier. You can say it's not there. You can try to take it off yourself. You can go against it. It doesn't matter. You and I are guilty. And we have a guilty conscience. And if we have an honest look at our heart, we say the same things as Isaiah, don't we? Woe is me. I'm lost. I'm unclean. But what I want to tell you is if you're willing to say that, you might hear the same words Isaiah did. Except for it's not going to be an angel that flies to you. It's Jesus. And he says your sins are atoned for. You're forgiven. Your sin atoned for. Your conscience made clean. You see, our conscience tells us what we must think of ourselves. I am guilty. I'm sinful. But it is the blood of Jesus that tells you what God thinks of you in Christ. You're clean. It changes you. It cleans you. It restores you. And it brings you in to the presence of God. It brings teachings into mind, doesn't it? The, the teaching of Christ when he's talking to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15. When we are unclean and we have a un, um, an unbiblical understanding of our sin. What does he say in Matthew chapter 15? These people, they, they honor me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. They do these commandments of men, but they know nothing of me. He's saying, you and I might say, well, we're doing things because we've always done it. He's saying, you think because you've had a good day or a good year that it should balance out your bad day or your bad year or your bad moment. He's saying, you don't understand sin. You do not understand what R.C. Sproul would say, it's the cosmic treason against the holiness of God. And what Hebrews is saying is this high priest, this Jesus, well, he's become the spotless substitute that you might be clean. Now, how does that have an effect for you and I? I'll, I'll end quickly here. That last little phrase in verse 14, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. One aspect of salvation, of the work of Christ, the priestly office of Christ is to clean you. It's to make you clean, but he doesn't do that so that you jump right back in the mud pit. I would like to tell you I'm an efficient person. My wife's not here this morning, so she cannot argue with that. I'm not an efficient person, but I want to be. And so when I look at things that are inefficient, it makes me frustrated. Many of you have heard, we, we have a dog. She's a great dog, mostly. Her name's Idolette. Let me just, some of y'all don't say it right. Idolette. It's French. It was John Calvin's wife's name. The reason why we named it is because he described his wife as a great companion, and we want that for her. You know when she makes me the most frustrated? I bring her in. I want to give her a bath. And I think, oh, this beautiful, joyous, smell-good dog is now with us. 
And it takes her moments, moments. I'm not even sure she makes it outside before she has messed herself up. And I don't know what she did in our house to mess herself up. But every time it frustrates me, I just made you clean, not so that you could do that. That's what Jesus has done. He's made you clean, not so that you jump back in, but that you have a better understanding of who he is and what he's made you to do. The blood of Jesus, it saves and it sends us. It sends us with a purpose. And the beauty of what is being said here is the Greek, that word serve, latreyin. It's in the same word family as the word latreya. Do you know what that word means? The answer is no. None of you have taken Greek. It means to worship. Do you see what the writer has just told you? To worship is to serve. To serve is to worship. That's the point of knowing Christ is in fact to make him known. It means worship matters. It's a practice that will not end. You do not worship here because you think it stops there. It's only enhanced. Do you wanna get a picture of worship? Read the Psalter. It will give you a description of your entire life all of your struggles, all of your circumstances, all of your disappointments, all of your excitements, they're all in there. But do you know where the Psalter ends? They call them the Hallel Psalms. It's the last five Psalms in the Psalter. The reason why they're called that is because they begin and end with praise Yah or praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. And if you need a shortcut, not that you should do this spiritually, but if you need a shortcut, go to Psalm 150. It's the last one. You know what you will not find? A single distraction from the worship of God. And that is what we do on Sunday mornings is we are practicing for the Psalm 150. We long for the day that we get to serve God for all eternity because we get to worship him. But you can do that now. Your worship matters not just for you, it matters to your fellow brothers and sisters who sit next to you in these pews. It matters to your neighbors who have never heard the name of Christ before. Your worship has an effect way beyond yourself. It's why you prioritize these moments because it matters now and forevermore. If you want to have a complete Christmas, it's because you have a complete Christ. You must understand not just the wisdom words of fulfillment and truth in Christ. You must understand that he doesn't just rule and reign with the scepter. Those matter because in the middle, he has made propitiation for your sin. And you get to sit under his rule and reign. I hope that's you. But if it's not, I beg of you, do not let these moments pass you by in which you do not ask the question, what does God think of me? Let me pray to that end. Our God and our Father, we thank you that the words of our mouth are only found before your throne because we have the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Without him, we have no access to you. And yet in your great love for us, you sent forth your son that he might offer himself, and that is give of his life, shed his blood, that we might be clean. And so if there are those who have no understanding of the shed blood of Christ, O Lord, have mercy and reveal yourself even this moment to the very depths of their heart, that they might see Jesus. And yet if there are those who do know Christ, Would they remember the words of Christ? Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Help us, the people of God, to serve, to worship, because worshiping is serving. And we want to do so because we have a priest who saves us, who sanctifies us, and who sends us, and yet who secures us for all eternity. And we ask it in his name. Amen.